Last week, um, and actually, uh, you who are regular first morning, uh, first service people, uh, uh, you, you got, uh, I guess I'd call it a little blessing or something. I, I didn't even make it to the second service, so we just, we just videoed the first one for the second service. Uh, you got me live. But in that live sermon, I talked about technology and uh, how, you know, just how we're, we're moving into kind of a helter-skelter existence, partly because of the explosion of technology. The average American has to uh, learn how to use 20,000 pieces of technology. Um, I have kind of a testimony about this, actually. I, I learned how to use one of them uh, yesterday. Uh, and this, to me, is a major achievement. I, I, after having driven my car for six years and put on 71,000 miles, I figured out how to program my car radio. Is that not magnificent? <laughs> Hallelujah. And, and actually, it's a little bit of a stretch to say I figured it out, because I did it by accident. I was just, you know, I always had to fish, you know, at the stations. I had my finger on the button, and then I got distracted from something, and I kept my finger on the button for about a second. All of a sudden, I heard this beep. And then I found whenever I pushed that button, it went back to that station. Voila! <laughs> Ask me about hexagons. <laughs> I want to title this message, I, and I don't know why Lord, the Lord's just been giving me titles for my messages lately, but uh, this one's going to be called Lessons from the Laid-Back Messiah on Stuff. Lessons from the Laid-Back Messiah on Stuff. We're in a, a series here on, on stress. And uh, uh, pressure in life and the hectic pace that we keep. And I want to read from the book of Mark and the book of John. Some interesting passages. It says this in Mark chapter 6. <clears throat> the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Apparently it had been a pretty busy day. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They went away into the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Jesus says to his disciples, you had a hard day, let's get away, get something to eat, get some leisure, some downtime, some fellowship. And then in John chapter 2, he says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And in fact, they went. Let's talk to God for a moment about the message. Could I get some people around the auditorium that will keep me covered in prayer, especially for the strength of my voice and that I don't go into a coughing fit? All right, thank you. Uh, Lord, uh, this is your word, and we need to learn from it. Uh, God, I'm just so aware that uh, we're coming up against a huge, humongous stronghold in our culture, at least for a lot of us. And uh, I am so convinced that I can't talk myself out of this one, let alone anyone else. Uh, Lord, but you have this promise in your word that, that, that when the word goes forth, it will not return void. It will do what, what you want it to do. And so, Father, we're praying that, that, that promise on this message right now. Change us. Wake us up. Uh, God, help us to realize uh, the depth to which we are in bondage and begin to give us wisdom as to what to do about it, Lord. Uh, we want to be people who walk according to kingdom principles, not just according to uh, this world's principles or this world's uh, pressures, Lord. Uh, disciple us in this message. Pull us in, Lord, on this message. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Last week I, I gave some statistics to show that our culture is insane. I want us to wake up to the insane, helter-skelter nature of our culture. 
we really are living in a unique period in, in, in history. Uh, there never has been <clears throat> a, a culture quite like this. In fact, not anything close to uh, what we are in right now. People have always had it hard. People have always struggled. But the unique <clears throat> element of pressure and uh, helter-skelter-hurriedness that we experience as modern Western people is really unique, and it has some unique repercussions. Over 80% of all Americans say they would like to significantly reduce stress in their life, but most of them just don't know how. And I think this is one message where I don't need to do a lot of argumentation to convince us that as a matter of fact, uh, uh, this is true. That we're living in a helter-skelter rat race running around with your head cut off kind of a uh, chicken running around with his head cut off kind of a uh, existence. Um, how many times this week, just think about it, how many times this week did you find yourself rushing somewhere? How many times this week did you, did you find yourself being behind? How many times this week did you feel pressure? And did you experience stress? How many times this week did you wish to yourself or to someone else that you had more time? You just need more time. How many times this week did you, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, find yourself extremely tired because you're not getting enough sleep? In fact, how many times this week did you have to get woken up by an alarm clock instead of waking up naturally, including this morning? <laughs> I suspect for most of us it was at least five, and for a lot of us, like myself, it was seven. Uh, we, we are living in a unique time. There's a multitude of new options and decisions that we've got to make and a new pressures that are put upon us and, 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 and just a lot of things that create our life into sort of a, a hustle-bustle modality. Uh, as we said last week, quoting David Zack, we are hyper-living. We're not living. Modern people, we are hyper-living, skimming along on the surface of life. Very much like water bugs you know, scurrying around helter-skelter on the surface. Uh, the direction we go pretty much depends on how the wind is blowing. There's no real focus to our life. Uh, we're just, uh, we move from momentary pressure to momentary pressure and, and try to respond to the urgency of the now. That's pretty much our life. And we skim on the surface of life because we never go deep because going deep on anything takes time. Uh, depth in relationships, depth in our relationship with God, depth in your own self-knowledge, it takes time, and that's the one thing that we modern people don't have. I like a quote that I found this week from Christopher Leish. Uh, he says, the characteristic mood of our time, a baffled sense of drift. Just, uh, you know, a day goes by, and when you, get, when you plop yourself down at night out of, in, in exhaustion, uh, just to get a moment's recovery, you wonder where the day went. You're just sort of drifting. And then a week goes by, and where did that week go? And a month goes by, and you wonder where the week went. And a year goes by, uh, and you wonder where the year went. And you add enough of those together, and, and at some point, you're going to be wondering where the life went. It's just, just a drift. It's sort of like, i got to do this. And now i, oh, I got to do this. And oh, my gosh, and now i got to do this. Whoa, I'm late for this. And, and we're just running around, scurrying around like a water bug on, on the surface of the water. Just sort of a drift. This pressure comes, that pressure comes, this emergency comes, this urgency comes. It's crazy. It's insane. That's why we said last week that the first step to getting out of this driftedness, this helter-skelter water bug existence, is to get a purpose, uh, to, to, to have a mission and vision statement. And I believe every person needs to write that down as an anchor in your, in your life, as a benchmark that you go to. Uh, why, 
Why do you think humans exist? That's your mission statement. What are people supposed to do? And why do you in particular exist? What does God want to do with your life, at least right now in the next five years or so? What is your vision? What are you living for? What are you trying to achieve with your life? And to write it out, think about it, work on it, get it down to one statement. This is the center of the center for me. Because you see, if we don't have, if we don't take the trouble to anchor our life, if we don't take the trouble to define the purpose of our life, then we are defaulting to the, the setting of our culture, and the setting of our culture is not good. It's that water bug helter skelter. The only thing that will keep us from being uh, held captive to the tyranny of the urgent is a sense of direction, a sense of focus. And as the waves of, of competing pressures come at us, we can steer through them because we, we know why we exist. We know what we're here to do. We know what our purpose is. Only a vision, a purpose, uh, a, a theme to your life can tell you what on your plate you should keep and what on your pl plate you should get, get rid of. And it may be good stuff. It may be nice stuff. It may be wonderful stuff, but it's not stuff you're supposed to have because it doesn't fit the purpose of your life. Only if we have a vision for our life can we, can we do the one thing that it's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do in preaching. It's the hardest thing to do in composing. It's the hardest thing to do in writing a book, and that is editing. I always tell people, you know, the, the tough thing about preaching is not what do you say. It, the hardest thing for me is finding out what I don't want to say. You know, and, and I got to cut it out. You should see the wonderful insights that I cut out of this message. Uh, I, I'll give them to you next week. Huh? But, uh, you know, you, you got to edit. We need to edit our life. Some of us are editorially challenged. <laughs> you know, whatever comes our way, we just, it, it, like a barnacle, it just sticks there. Now, you know, now I got to do this. And then you got barnacle of any, and, and, and you're, 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 we're drowning in a sea of barnacles, each one of which is sucking some time, adding some stress, and therefore sucking life out of us. What's your vision? How, what's the criteria by which you're going to edit your life? Now, the thing that impresses me is that Jesus lived with passion and Jesus lived with, with purpose. If ever a person had purpose and a singularity of vision for his life, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he never lived helter-skelter. He was not a water bug on the surface. You never see him giving in to the tyranny of the urgent. In fact, he seems actually quite laid back when you look at it. We saw last week in the middle of a revival, man, crowds are coming, people are getting healed, uh, demonized are getting set free, and in the middle of the whole thing, just as the large crowd is coming, he closes up shop. All done, gotta go sleep. He, he knew his boundaries. He didn't seem to uh, go helter-skelter at the needs that were out there, the, all the work that could be done, all the glory you could give to God. When he hit the wall, when he, when he knew he hit his limits, he closed up shop. All done, sorry, gotta go now, into the boat, falls asleep. And here we saw in the passage this morning that after a, a, a day's ministry, people were coming and going. He says, okay, we got to eat. We got to get some leisure. We got to get some hang time. We got to chill. Let's just go away to a deserted place. And, and, and he didn't have any pain of conscience about that. He would leave all the unmet needs and just go and say, okay, now we have, have to have some downtime. And then he has time to go to a wedding. And Jewish weddings lasted all day. And uh, he has time to go to this wedding. And it, there was a time where that, that actually bugged me. I, I, I puzzled over that. How does the Savior of the world have time to go to a party? And, back in my fundy days, even worse was, why does he waste a miracle changing water into wine? Uh, didn't he take his catechism class and, and learn that you're not supposed to drink wine? <laughs> you know, especially after all these people had drank all that wine. I mean, this is the second round, folks. Uh, and and they, they used to bother me, you know, somewhat. It doesn't bother me at all anymore, but, uh, you know, I used to judge Jesus on that one. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, you are a very bad Baptist. 
But see, he took time out to party. He took time out to rest. He took time out to relax. And I used to wonder how, how, how you know, how many kids could have used that miracle? How many crippled kids could have used that miracle? It's kind of like, you know, Judas with the, the money. You know, what, what else could we have spent this ointment on? I'm sitting there going, what else could you have spent that miracle on? I mean, come on, there's hungry people that need to be fed, and there's people who can't walk that could, could really, would literally like to walk, and there's lepers that need to be cleansed, and uh, there's souls that need to be saved. And here you are, relaxing, wasting a supernatural miracle, changing some water into wine, and you're not supposed to be drinking wine in the first place. What, you know, what's with this laid-back Messiah? But see, it fits the pattern of his life. How many times do you see Jesus rushing in the Gospels? Where does it ever say that he had to hurry to get somewhere? Uh, where do you find him, you know, uh, being concerned about keeping a schedule? Where do you find him actually making an appointment? I, I would think, you know, that the, the, the one who came to save the entire world at least would have had a secretary, if not a palm pilot, and be running around and say, okay, Jesus, now you have to meet the leper. Oh, time to go over here and save the prostitute. Oh, and now here's a, you know, and, and uh, the, you know, running helter-skelter. But he, he, wherever he went, he strolled. There's this laid-back quality, this relaxed quality that he had. He never worried he never pushed the panic button, even when he was being crucified. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? See, there's a, a purpose there, and, and, and uh, uh, he, he, he relaxed in it. He did what he was supposed to do, and then he left the rest for God. You even kind of see this laid-back quality in, in, in his own evangelism. Uh, you know, how many times do you see Jesus uh, trying to push people to the dotted line? You know, we got to solidify the important thing, and that is pray the sinner's prayer and believe in me. You don't find him doing that. There are occasions where he said, you know, uh, do you have faith that I'm able to do this? Because according to your faith, be it unto you. But, but what you see is, is, is a Savior who, uh, when, when issues would arise, he'd meet the needs of that time. He obeyed God uh, as, as issues arise, but you don't see him going helter-skelter trying to fix everything about everybody. He, he never uh, pries very much into the, 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 the morality of people. He doesn't try to fix their entire life. You don't see him saying, how on earth did you ever get this demonized? <laughs> uh, what kind of past do you have? Let's see, what? He, he, he addresses the issue and then he moves on. It, it's an amazing kind of thing. He, in some ways, he doesn't look like, like a, a modern-day evangelical. He, he doesn't push the panic button on politics of the day, and, and there's a lot of bad politics going on. It was a firestorm of political controversy in his day. The Roman government was corrupt, if ever a government was corrupt, and, and uh, Nero would have uh, orgies in the Senate to raise money uh, to build a new building, and, and they would crucify, hoard a round of people and crucify them just to make a point. Things are really bad, but you don't see Jesus ever writing a book on, on you know, the crisis in Roman morality. You know, he, he, he just obeys the will of God, and there's a calmness there, and he, he does what he can do in the limitations of his human existence, and the rest he leaves to his heavenly Father. There, there's a calmness there. There's a passion. There's an intensity. There's a purpose. There's a focus. There's no compromise, but there's no worry. There's no hurry. There's a calmness that is there. And not only that, but he taught his disciples to do the same thing. Here's what he says in, in the book of Matthew, a passage that is familiar to a lot of us. He says, I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you're going to wear. Chill. That's my paraphrase. Isn't that life more than food and the body more than clothing? It's the Gentiles, which is just the Jewish idiomatic way of saying people who don't know God. It is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what you should strive for. 
and all these other things will be added to you as well. Chill. Don't worry about your life. What's life? Uh, just be calm. Be laid back. Now, there's three, three lessons that we can learn about, uh, and there's more than that, but for this morning since I edited this, uh, there's three things I want us to get this morning. Uh, looking at Jesus' laid back life and Jesus' laid back teaching. First of all, number one, life is not found in striving for stuff. We've heard this before, but I believe we Americans need to hear it a thousand times again. By stuff, I mean stuff. You know, stuff. I got to stop at the store and get stuff. I, I, I got to f- build a, a barn to store my stuff. I got to get rid of some stuff. I got to get some new stuff. We use the word stuff a lot. Everything we think we own is our stuff. <laughs> striving. Now, you probably think, I don't strive for stuff. Well, what is striving? The passage really defines it when he parallels worrying and striving. Don't worry about it, which means don't strive for it. Whatever you worry about, you're striving for. Whatever you're anxious about, whatever occupies your time and energy, that you are striving for that. And Jesus is telling us life isn't found in striving for stuff. Now, the reason why we need to hear this this morning and a thousand other times is because if our culture is about anything, it's about striving for stuff. We're veritably addicted to stuff. The particular matrix of our culture, the system of lies in our culture, systematically conditions us programs us, brainwashes us to believe that we need more stuff. We've got to acquire more stuff. My life's missing something unless I get that little piece of stuff. And, and unless you're brushing with this brand of toothpaste and driving this kind of car and wearing this kind of clothes, clothes and smelling with this kind of cologne, and you, 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 your life's going to be missing something, so you need some stuff. You've got to acquire your stuff, and then you've got to maintain your stuff, and then you've got to learn how to work your stuff, because it's hard to figure out. And then you've got to fix your stuff, you've got to polish your stuff, and you've got to restore store your stuff, and when your stuff breaks, you, 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 you got to make sure that it gets mended, or you bring it in and get some new upgraded stuff, and we're always about acquiring stuff. It's, it's our culture. It's in the air that we breathe. We're, we're brainwashed to think this, but see, because it's the matrix, it's invisible. None of us, none of us thinks we're doing this. We don't, we don't put the connection together between our striving for stuff and stress because we don't think we're striving for stuff. Uh, this is why we genuinely find ourselves in stress. All of a sudden, we just wake up and it's like, uh, man, is, how did my life get so out of control? Uh, how did I, I ever get in, in this kind of debt? Uh, where did the money go? Uh, where did my time go? And then pretty soon you're asking, where did our relationship go? We, did, we just sort of find ourselves on this, on this rat race, and we don't know how we got on it, and we don't know, know how we got off it. But here's a clue. Look around. Chances are you've got more stuff now than you had five years ago, and that's where the answer's found. We're striving for more stuff. We don't think we are. We want to blame the schedule, blame the boss, blame the nasty neighbor or whatever, but really what's driving the whole machinery of our culture and what's driving our stress is our stuff. When you make $10,000 a year, you don't have a whole lot of stuff and you feel some pressure. Then three years later, you're making $50,000 a year and, and, and you got a lot better stuff, but, but you still feel the pressure. Maybe it's even worse. And then three years later, you're making $100,000 a year and you got even better stuff, but you, now you feel even more pressure. Uh, let's put two and two together. What's the equation? Uh, the way our culture runs is by we increase our stress for the sake of getting more stuff. And, and, and the only way we're going to change our stress is by changing our attitude towards our stuff. The reality is, to the extent that we're striving for our stuff, the stuff we think we own, we don't own. Rather, our stuff owns us. Because the one who's making us busy and the one who's stressing us out 
The one who's causing us this anxiety, the one who's causing us to run like a water bug on the surface of the water is our stuff. That house is telling you every morning. No one else is doing it. The house is saying, get out there and work for me, you slave. You earn me. And your clothes is saying, get out there and work. You got to get a second job uh, if you're going to maintain me in your life. And the shoe is saying, and, the, and the, 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 the addition to the house is saying, and the car is saying, get out there, you slave. You work for me. You earn me. You know, we, 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 you know we benefit you. In fact, they'll lie to you. They'll say, hey, we, we de-stress you. You need us to stay away from stress. So go out there and get stressed out. We're, 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 we're ta- our taskmaster is our stuff. Just ask the question, what would happen if you, st- if you just got off the treadmill and stopped working like you're working now and say you only wanted to work half as much as you're working now? What would happen? What's the worst case scenario? You would lose your stuff. Because your stuff is saying, you don't work for us, we're leaving. <laughs> we're out of here, dude. You know, yeah. You see, it, 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 it's, it's about stuff. This is why Jesus warns us to beware of stuff and beware of striving for stuff because life is not found in stuff. In fact, striving for stuff is one of the all-time great life suckers. Life, stuff doesn't give you life. You know that. You have more stuff to show for it, but it's the same amount of stress and probably you're no more happy for it. And you know, there's no more peace or joy in your life because life isn't found in stuff and life is lost by striving for stuff. Jesus tells us that life is found in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Life is found in living in congruity with God. That's life. Life is found when you when, when, when uh, walk as the recipient of outrageous love and the dispenser of outrageous love. Life is found when... When you're, when you're full of the Holy Spirit and, and, and the joy of the Holy Spirit is in you and the peace of the Holy Spirit is in you and the power of the Holy Spirit is in you. Life is found when you've got a purpose for your life and you know that you're making a difference and you feel like your life is significant. That is life. Life is found when you know that right now is not the whole thing. So you don't need to... The, the, this short little period of time is, is, is not the whole thing. It's just a warm-up period. Your inheritance is coming, so you don't need to be clutching for it now. Your riches are coming, so you don't need to be clutching for it now. Uh, you know, you're going to die and go to heaven, which means you don't need to cling to anything that hard right now. That is life. That is freedom. That is joy. That's the kingdom of God. Praise God. And Amen. Nothing. Nothing will suck it away like striving for stuff. So point number one, life's not found in striving for stuff, which leads to the second point. Jesus tells us that we need to trust God for our stuff. And this is another hard one in our culture. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Thing is, is we're systematically conditioned in our culture, and this is this is a legacy of the fall, to trust ourselves for our stuff. We trust ourselves for everything. Eve, when she first uh, rebelled against God, it, it, the essence of it was she was not gonna, no longer going to trust God to meet her needs. She was going to uh, trust herself, and, and there's something she could get, something she could acquire uh, that would improve her lot in life. It was on that tree. She could never sing the song we, we sang this morning. You, you know, you are everything. You're a, you are more than enough. Uh, she didn't sing that song. No, no. I, I, we, she trusted herself. That's legacy of the fall. And our culture, I submit to you, is living in a hyper-fallen mode because we, we're, we're conditioned to, to trust ourselves. We pray, give us our, this day our daily bread, but we know very well we'll do it ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we, we trust the bread makers to give us our bread, and we trust our jobs to give us the money to get the bread. We trust our abilities. We trust our know-how. And, and, and we assume that we have to do it ourselves, and that's what causes the striving. That's what causes the stress. Now, I want to be really clear on this point. And no one should hear me and say, oh, Greg is saying that we should quit our jobs and go into a little room and pray and think that God's going to feed us. 
No, the Bible assumes that we are to work. In fact, it, it emphasizes the importance of working. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Whoever does not provide for relatives, he's talking to Christians here, and family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul had just gotten off the phone with a couch potato, I think, because uh, th th this uh, word has got a lot of uh, oof to it. And you got, we, there's a number of issues that could, we could discuss here, and you've got to do some cultural stuff. But the main point Paul is making is this, that you, you, you have to take responsibility for those you're responsible for, and, and you've got to work for a living. That, that's assumed. You work for a living. But see, the thing is this. We're to trust God to meet our needs, and one of the ways God meets our needs is by giving us jobs to work for a living. But our trust is supposed to be in God, not in the job that he gave us, as a way of meeting our needs. You see how, how it fits together. We, we got to know this as well. The promise is that God will meet our needs. It's not that God will meet all of our wants. Two very, very different things, which means we need to live with a m mindset of this. We seek first the kingdom of God, and we have an open palm policy towards everything. And one of the ways that you can find whether, whether something you have is something you need or want is that God might take it away, in which case you know you didn't need it. But unless, we're, unless we're, we are willing to let go of our stuff, there's no way you can possibly trust God completely. I, 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 got, I went through a hard lesson on this two years ago, uh, a little school education uh, on this particular point. When, when two years ago, as a lot of you know, God really told me in no uncertain terms that I was supposed to leave Bethel College. Uh, the way God works in my life, since I'm not the most spiritually bright person on the planet, is he makes me increasingly miserable until I hear his voice. Uh, and, and I was just getting miserable. I was, I was bottoming out. Uh, the passion was going in, in teaching. Things that used to excite me bored me to death. Something was wrong. And God was uh, telling me to, that I was supposed to let go of that. But see, I didn't want to hear it. The reason I didn't want to hear it is because that decision would have cut my income in half and doubled my expenses. I don't like that decision. And we have a tremendous capacity not to hear something that's inconvenient for us to hear. And so I'm just going along thinking, oh, maybe it's, I'm not getting enough sleep. Maybe I need to do this, that, or the other thing. But what I'm noticing is that my life is drying up. And all the while, God is shouting from heaven, stop that job. I want you just to leave it. Finally, I get so miserable that I entertain the possibility that, that God is, is asking me to leave Bethel. And uh, what do you, I hear from heaven is this great big voluminous, duh. I, you know, I've been screaming this at you for a year. No, I, I, you know, I want to make sure that I'm hearing God. So I talked to my wife. We talked to friends. We have others pray about it because this is a major life decision. And, and we don't know how this is going to work. Uh, but it became very clear that God was, in fact, telling us to do this. Now, immediately I knew it was the right decision because the joy came back. The passion came back. Uh, the writing came back. The creativity came back. It's like, whoa, you know, it was, it was fantastic. Not only that, but, but in a fairly miraculous way for about three or four months, blessings just were coming at us financially. We didn't skip a beat. It's like, whoa. You know, this is great. Well, then they stopped. <laughs> and, uh, you know, th th that, that calls, calls for some readjustments. Like, this is going to get interesting here pretty quick. Don't know what's going to happen here. Worst case scenario. See, we still got a house. We still got a car. Yeah, still got a job. We're still eating. You know, our needs are being met. What we're not sure about is how many of our wants we're going to be able to keep. You know, and this is just... Uh, worst case scenario, you'll lose some of your stuff. Boo-hoo. <laughs> You know, wah, wah. You got to downsize your stuff. Is that the worst thing that ever happened to somebody? You know, I just came back from Cambodia, you know, working with our medical team with the Vietnamese refugees, and I realized that I could get rid of 98% of my stuff, and I'm still about 10 times better off than any of them ever dream of being. 
Most of us could lose half of our stuff and uh, be better off than, than over half the world. Uh, we, we've got a lot of stuff. And, and we need to hold it with, with, with open palms. Our culture will tell us that we need to have it. We got to have it. You know, your, your life's incomplete without it. You're going to be miserable without it. And you'll actually decrease stress in your life by acquiring more of it. But you know that's a lie. You're better than that. You're smarter than that. You're kingdom people. You know where life is found. You can see through the shallowness of all this. You can see how, how pathetic it is. You see what a deception it is. Jesus calls us to get our focus, our vision on the kingdom of God and, and just trust God for all the stuff. What you're supposed to have He'll bring your way. If you don't have it, that means that, that you must not need it. Stress. You can always get a formula here. Stress is in direct proportion to the degree that we're clutching. When we hang on to stuff we don't need because we think we need it, we cause stress to our life. That's stress. And what we need to ask the Lord to do is just to pry our fingers away. If God gives you a lot of stuff, wonderful. Live it with kingdom principles. Share it. Use it. But don't cling to it. Don't cling to it. Have it like this. We are to not strive for stuff and we're to trust God for our stuff. Point number three, know this. The kingdom is about everything. And this is going to be a little reframe for some of us. And it won't be immediately clear what this has to do with this particular message, but I assure you it has everything to do with it. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? What does that mean? See, here, here's the thing. We, we, modern Western people. By modern, I mean post-enlightenment people, us. We Christians tend to, and it's a fairly recent development in church history, actually, but we tend to define the kingdom of God in terms of its, its uh, what we think are its, its uh, bare bones, bottom line sort of a thing. And, and uh, because of that, we define it as being an individual thing, and it's primarily, if not exclusively, about saving someone from hell. Uh, the kingdom, you bring the kingdom when you save somebody, and salvation is an individual matter of rescuing someone from, from, uh, from hell. And so everything else, we want to give them to pray the sinner's prayer, and then we've done evangelism, otherwise it's not evangelism. And therefore, with that mindset, we think everything else is sort of incidental to the kingdom. Uh, you know, maybe it'd be nice, but it's not as important. So, so talking about discipleship is secondary, and talking about uh, you know, social issues is, is secondary, and striving for mental and physical wholeness is, is secondary. Feeding people and housing people and clothing people is secondary, and freeing people and coming against systemic uh, uh, systems of, of oppression and against racism. Well, that's, that, that maybe is nice, but it's secondary, and that's why if a person preaches on this too much, uh, they're seen as being imbalanced and maybe even liberal because the real important thing is getting that individual to pray the sinner's prayer. We have a very myopic understanding of the kingdom and a myopic understanding of salvation. Jesus, you'll notice, never did that, as I said earlier. Jesus did the will of God as he was walking around the world, uh, however it, it presented itself to him. Uh, but he wasn't always going for the bottom line, trying to get people to resolve once and for all their relationship with him. When there were sick people, he brought healing. When there was broken people, he brought mending. When there were oppressed people, he brought deliverance. When there were de demonized people, he freed them from, from demonization. When there were hungry people, he fed them. When there were, when there were uh, uh, marginalized people, he reached out to them, breaking every social taboo in first century Judaism to do it. But see, on all of that, he was doing the kingdom of God. He, he, he didn't have this intensity. He seem to be, have a kind of trust that his father will save everyone who's salvageable. His job is to do the will of God right here, right here, right here, right here. And there's limitations to that. So when he was done, he rested and he got in his boat and he fell asleep or he went to a wedding. 
He didn't really look too evangelical in some ways, if I can say that. Now, what explains this thing about Jesus? And what explains it is this. The kingdom of God in the Bible is not this myopically defined thing about an individual and their eternal state. The kingdom of God is a holistic concept. It's, it's expressed by the biblical idea of shalom, which means wholeness, which means peace. It means congruity. The kingdom of God is the dome in which God is king. And so wherever you are doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven, you are to that degree spreading the kingdom of God. You see, and our job as human beings is just to do God's will in this situation and this situation and this situation, hit our limitations and leave the rest to God. That's why Jesus could have this incredible calmness combined with a sense of passion and purpose. Leading a person to Jesus Christ is wonderful, it's beautiful, it's absolutely essential. I love to do it. It's one of my favorite things in life. It's kingdom work, absolutely. But so is praying for, for the sick. That's kingdom work. So is ascribing worth to somebody who doesn't think they have any worth. Man, that is just as kingdom work as anything could ever be. Helping a couple work through some of their marital problems is kingdom work. And befriending somebody, reaching out to somebody in the gathering area who's standing all by themselves, that's kingdom work. Watching the, uh, your, the, 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 the kids of a friend of yours so they, they can go out and, and have some time together, that's kingdom work. And freeing the oppressed and combating racism is kingdom work. Walking with a pregnant teenager uh, who's, who's scared and doesn't know what to do, that is kingdom work. That, that, that's, that feeding the hungry, it, that's not secondary kingdom work. That's not incidental, not watered down, not backburner kingdom work. That is kingdom work. That, that is the kingdom of God. That's sal- you're bringing salvation. You're bringing good news to situations uh, around you. It, you're doing the will of God. And here's another thing. Going to a wedding and changing water into wine is kingdom work. Saving a wedding host from embarrassment, that is kingdom work. God is for that sort of thing. Hanging out with your friends, getting away to eat and have some leisure, that's kingdom work. Hanging out as Jesus often did with the prostitutes and the drunkards and the tax collectors of society, the lepers, that's kingdom work. You see, Jesus was the kingdom. He didn't like do the kingdom sometimes and then stop doing the kingdom. He didn't compartmentalize his life. We, we, we Westerners just compartmentalize everything. You know, we, we were secular and then we're religious and then we're spiritual and then we're not spiritual and then, then, then we're holy and then, then we're mundane and, and we have this divided world. You see, we go to church and then we stop going to church. But see, the Bible has a much more holistic concept. It's about the individual, but it's also about the community. It's about, it's about later, but it's also about now. It's about the soul, but it's also about the body. It's also about a person's stomach. It's about, in fact, all time, all space, all people, all nations belong to God. And so the kingdom of God is about everything. The kingdom of God, you don't start doing the kingdom of God and stop doing the kingdom of God. We're called to be the kingdom of God. We're called to take the kingdom of God wherever we go. And so you got to know this. We don't take breaks from the kingdom. We, a kingdom person is the kingdom wherever you are. Spending time with your wife is kingdom work, husband. Uh, spending time with your husband is kingdom work, wife. That's not secondary stuff. That's important. Spending time with your kids, playing with Legos, that's kingdom work. That's beautiful kingdom work. And hanging out with your friends and, and spending some time developing relationships, that's kingdom work. That's, that's kingdom business. That's kingdom fun. Uh, honoring somebody, ascribing worth to people in every way, shape, and form, hanging out with, with your neighbor. You see, you're not taking a break from the kingdom. No, it's just a different kind of kingdom thing. And here's the, here's the touchstone. That is as important as anything else you're going to do. 
You see, as long as we think that this, spending time with the family, the, the real important stuff is our doing. The real important stuff is our earning. The real important stuff is our, our religious stuff, okay? If that's the real important stuff and, and everything else is a break from it, guess what? Your break time's gonna get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? Because the important stuff is always more important stuff to do. The only way to fight it is to retag it, reframe it. My family is kingdom ministry. My relationships are kingdom ministry. My rest is kingdom ministry. My health is kingdom ministry. The kingdom is about being a whole human being. And you see what a whole human being looks like with Jesus. A passion, a purpose, an intensity, but a laid back, trusting God quality to the whole thing. And to live in that kind of a balance. Would you close your eyes? Well, yeah, I, I, don't close your eyes just yet. Because I, 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 if you do, you won't be able to read what I'm going to give you right now. I forgot about this. I'm going to end with four questions. Very quickly, just to review this. Are you enslaved? Here's four questions. Just be honest with yourself. This isn't like, uh, don't worry about anyone else. Just think about yourself here, okay? Are you enslaved to our cultural addiction to stuff? The cheese that makes the mouses run on that wheel is stuff. Let's name it. Now, I'm not even going to say what to do about it just yet. Let, let God tell you that. But it's a very valuable thing to name it. Are you chasing the stuff? Number two, do you, own, do you own stuff or does your stuff own you? And the way to find that out is to ask, how painful would it be to give it away? I read this week, if you can't give it away, it owns you. Number three, are you trusting God to provide the stuff you need? Are you trusting God? So, so you, you can have a singular focus. This frees you to have a singular focus. You seek first the kingdom of God, and whatever you're supposed to have, you're going to have. He'll give you a job. It may be a well-earning one. It may be a meager one, but you'll have what you need. Are you trusting God to provide stuff? And number four, are you living the kingdom in downtime and in your relationships? Have you, will you identify those? Will you make a commitment to identify those as not secondary, as in, incidental, but as part of the kingdom? And therefore, as being as important as anything else that you're ever called to do. Now, would you close your eyes? And I'm just going to leave all disciples of Christ with that challenge this morning. I'm going to ask you and ask the Holy Spirit to sear that into our minds, to help us to walk in, just live in this question. I don't have any quick fix solutions, but just live in this question and let God work with you. But I want to end with this. This isn't a going for the bottom line kind of a thing. But I just want to give an invitation to anybody who's here and you're not part of the kingdom. You know who you are. Uh, to belong to the kingdom means you're related to the king. That's how it happens. And that happens when you simply make a commitment from your heart that says, Lord, I'm going to live for you. I need your forgiveness and I, I submit my life to you. And I want to take 30 seconds to do this. If there's anybody in this auditorium who hasn't done that or needs to renew their commitment, would you just raise your hand right where you are? I'm just going to pray for you from up here. This, is a, this isn't a cure-all magical formula, but it's a, a, a step in the right direction. This starts the process. Anybody here need to surrender their life to, to Jesus Christ? We had seven people. Well, there's a few hands that just went up. Seven people last night surrendered their life to Christ. Uh, that's the beginning of the holistic process. I see that hand. Wonderful. I've got several, uh, several others. Raise your hand over uh, several in the back. I see one, two, three. Wonderful. There's about seven people who have raised their hands. Anybody else? You just say, okay, I, look, I, I need to surrender this. This is what starts it. You want to be a kingdom person. You want to get off the rat race. You want to find the purpose of life, the fulfillment of life. Anybody else? Just raise your hand very quickly. Over there, I see that hand. Praise God. Up here in the front. I love doing this. I love doing this. 
Uh, amen. I see over there in the back, way in the back. Wonderful, wonderful. Holy Spirit, just be moving. If at any time while we're praying, you want to jump on board, just feel free to do so. Those who have raised your hand, uh, I'm going to lead you in a prayer here, like a, like a pat, preacher does on a wedding vow. And this is just solidifying a commitment. Now, don't do this if it's a religious thing for you or if it's just going to be today. Save it to when you are ready. But if you're ready to sell out and say, I want to live for Jesus Christ, then pray this prayer with me. And we'll all join with you in this because it's a community thing. Say, Heavenly Father, you are King. You are Lord. You're my Creator. And I owe you everything. But I admit, I haven't lived like that. I confess, I am a sinner in need of your grace. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, forgive me, wash me, Live in me and help me live for you the rest of my life, starting now. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome you guys to the kingdom. Wonderful. Praise God. Amen. That's wonderful. That's wonderful.